Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. <laughs> uh, let me briefly introduce myself if you don't know me. My name is Al. This is my wife, Tanya. Um, Rupert, our son, is the, the little ginger boy running around. Yes, he is ginger, just about, just enough. And uh, yeah, we love him very much. There's some, there's some photos. Um, but I won't spend a lot of time on introductions today because I, I hope many of you know me or at least know of me or at least know our boy. He's the most famous member of our family. Anyway, today I'm going to be continuing in our series that we've called Visions of God. The purpose of the series is to help us um, grow in our understanding and knowledge of God, our love for him, and our knowledge and love of his character. And it is my hope that by the time I'm finished today, that all we will want to do is worship and adore God. Now, that won't be because of my great oratory, I can assure you of that, but it will be because of the greatness of God himself, a God who is holy and who is awesome in the true meaning of, of that word but also a God who is loving, who is caring, who knows our lives, who knows our situations and intervenes in our lives. By studying today Moses' famous encounter with God at the burning bush, I hope that we will see, a bit like Moses did, that God is more awe-inspiringly holy than we could possibly imagine, but also more jaw-droppingly gracious. Now we're going to be reading today Exodus chapter 3, but before we do that, I just want to ask you a question. The question is, have you ever been afraid and awestruck at the same time? Or to put it another way, have you ever been simultaneously overwhelmed by fear and beauty? Well, I think that something akin to that happened to me about two months ago. We were skiing in the Alps, went on a family ski trip, and it's only my third time on skis, so I'm something of a novice. And every time I put the skis on and go on the mountain, I have a kind of sensation that you would probably best describe as the fear of death. I feel that I'm going to fall off the precipice, land in some crevice never to be found, or I'm going to lose control, or I'm going to get stuck in a freak snowstorm, or I'm going to get caught in the chairlift with my ski and go upside down, back down the mountain. I feel fear, but that's not all I fear, I, all I feel. I also feel awe. I am blown away by the beauty of the mountains, the grandeur of the scenery around me. It's always breathtaking. That, that's a picture of, of, of where we've just been or where we were two months ago. And I think that it's a similar kind of mix or combination of, of emotions that Moses feels at the burning bush when he encounters God in the desert, although I would expect they were much more intense than my feelings on the ski slope. Anyway, in one of the most well-known passages in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, we read that God appears to Moses in a bush, and the bush appears to be or seems to be on fire, but is not consumed. And I'll read that, read that passage to us now. It's Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he, he, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. 
And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the, and the Jebusites, not to forget the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the the Hivites, and the Jebusites besides a land flowing with milk and honey and they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him the Lord the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in a house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." So this day where where Moses has this amazing encounter with God starts pretty much like every other day for the past 40 years. Moses was tending sheep in sweltering conditions in the desert. There was nothing particularly special about that day. There was nothing particularly special about that location. In fact, even a bush on fire probably would not have caught Moses' attention straight away in that climate. But little did Moses know that when he went over to investigate the bush, that he was about to have an encounter with God that would change the course of his life and change the course of the Israelite people. We read in verses 3 to 6, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, isn't it interesting how quickly Moses' inquisitiveness, he goes over to look, turns into fear. As soon as he realizes who is speaking to him, he hides his face. In fact, Stephen, in the book of Acts, when he talks about this encounter, says that Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look at God. He did not dare look. Now, why is it that God elicits this kind of reaction? Why is Moses so afraid? Well, I think it's something like this. Moses encounters God in close proximity, and God is holy. And Moses, in that moment, instantly realizes that he is not. You know, this is actually not the first time in the Old Testament when people have come face to face or close to God, and they've tried to hide. We read in 1 Kings 19 that Elijah, when he hears the voice of the Lord, hides. And of course, we had the most famous example of Adam and Eve when 
when they've disobeyed God, they feel ashamed and they, and they try to hide. Now, this idea, there's a lot that can be said about the idea that God is holy, and there's no way that we could cover it all today, and I wouldn't pretend to you that I could know every angle of it. I do not. But one thing, one important element of it is what you might call God's unchanging purity. In other words, he is morally and ethically perfect. He has never sinned. He has no shortcomings. He has been and always will be perfect. But holiness is not just, not exclusively about moral perfection. It also refers to this concept of God being separate or set apart or different. Simply put, God is a higher order of being. He has no rival and he has no equal. And Moses at the burning bush, when he encounters God face to face, he gets a glimpse of this. He also gets a glimpse of how we were made to be like God. We were made to live in that moral perfection too, and we have fallen woefully short. It's interesting that the first thing that Moses said, Moses says in this dialogue, so God says, this is who I am, and this is what I want you to do. The first thing that Moses says is, who am I? Who am I that you would care for me? Who am I that you would use me? And his response is interestingly similar to that of Isaiah, who many years later would have, a, have his own powerful encounter with God, where he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he hears the angelic chorus crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when he hears this, he calls a curse upon himself. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Now, one thing actually, American theologian Robert Charles Sproul says that Isaiah in that moment for the first time, for the first time he sees what God is truly like and therefore for the first time he realizes what he is really like. Now in hearing me talk today about Moses and fear and Isaiah and curses, you might be thinking, Well, back up a minute, aren't those Old Testament stories? Surely we need not fear God like Moses did. Surely we need not call curses upon ourselves like Isaiah did. Well, if you're thinking that, you're you're right. Well done. Um, It's true that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are called the children of God, which means that all our sin, all our failings, all our shortcomings are covered over by the blood of Jesus, by his grace. We stand in his righteousness rather than in our failings. You know, there's a powerful verse in the book of Hebrews where it says that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Or in another translation, it says we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's a wonderful verse, but please don't miss the one very key word in that verse. We can boldly approach and we can draw near with confidence, but we are drawing near to a throne. Jesus says in John 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that... I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. So we are God's friends, we're an amazing truth. But we are his friends, that doesn't mean that we are his peers, nor does it mean that we are his equals. And we should, or let's not become over-familiar with God or cease to acknowledge him for who he truly is. Every night before Tanya and I go to bed, we will pray. And it's usually me who prays, most likely because I need to the most, but let's not go there. But I will pray, and often these prayers are short, And if I'm honest with you, often they're kind of shallow, maybe a bit selfish, and sometimes a bit irreverent. Usually they'll go a little bit like this. Dear God, I pray for a good day at work tomorrow and a good night's sleep. Amen. (laughs) Now, I do believe that God is a provider. There's many 
scripture, there's many uh, verses in the Bible that speak to that. I could tell you many stories in my own life where God has provided for me. I also believe that God cares about the details of my life. If he knows how many hairs I have on my head, I think he knows how many hours I need to sleep and what deadlines I face in the office. But if I'm honest, I think the heart behind that prayer, what I'm really saying to God is something like this. Hey God, plump my pillows, would you? Tuck me in. Sing me a lullaby. Now, I'm, I'm being a little bit ridiculous, but what I'm saying is that my prayers in that moment are about comfort and ease. They're not about me focusing on God being holy. I'm talking as if I'm talking to God the house cat rather than the lion of Judah. Now, when we approach God, there's a pendulum between over-familiarity on one hand and terror on the other. And I don't think that either extreme is appropriate or healthy. We see in this passage, but actually throughout the book of Exodus, that Moses had a face-to-face relationship with God, but he never lost the fear of God. In fact, the Bible tells us, teaches us that it is a good thing to fear God. It says that the fear of the Lord helps us to live a holy life, helps us to obey his commands, and is the beginning of wisdom. So that's a good thing. But when I'm speaking of fear, I'm not talking, just to be clear, I'm not talking about abject terror or cowering before some great and mighty leader. What I'm talking about is the concept of what you might call awe or respect. Now, Matt Redman, the British worship leader whose songs we sing every week, although I don't think we sang any today, um, he wrote a song in 1998 with a really um, powerful lyric that said, I want the friendship and fear of knowing you. And Andrew Wilson, who's a theologian and a church pastor in Eastbourne, um, he wrote a book, and in that book he reflects on Redmond's song, on the lyric about friendship and fear. And he says this idea, this mix of friendship and fear, it may sound like an odd combination, but actually it's something that is quite common to mankind. He says, think about the sea. The sea inspires both familiarity and fear. The people who know the sea best, the fishermen, the sailors, and the like, They're the ones who have the greatest respect for it. He then says, think about the sun. We all love the sun. I mean, go to London Fields today. We all love the sun, but no one would like to get too close to it. And here's a direct quote. He says, no one would say that our closeness to any of these things, the sun or the sea, etc., means that we shouldn't treat them with respect or or that their power suggests we should avoid them altogether. Friendship and fear go together. At the, root of a lot of, at the root of a lot of fear, though, is uncertainty. I doubt the consistency and the goodness of someone, i.e., in a situation, I'm thinking, how will they respond? Will they respond as they did before, or will it be different this time? And I'm thinking, will they be good to me or not? For example, on Tuesday morning, I'll get on my bike and I cycle to work. And, I, and my fear will be, will the taxi driver let me go, or will he cut me up? In other words, would he be a good taxi driver, or would he be a London taxi driver? Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, But God is unchangingly good. Therefore, when we talk about fear, it's not about we don't have this fear of unpredictability or what is he like. He is unchangingly good. Therefore, fear is more about respect than more about awe and respect than about terror. Now, let me briefly interject on myself. Now, if you're listening to this and you're hearing me say that God is unchangingly good, you might say, is he? Have you seen the world? Have you seen the suffering in the world? Are you, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Well, if, if that is uh, an objection you have or something that you, you're thinking about, 
I want to say that that is just kind of a valid question. I don't want to swat it away. Um, I will say, I'm sorry I'm going to disappoint you that today's sermon is not about that, so I'm not really going to elaborate much. But um, there was a sermon that Andy Tilsey did last year that talked about how can a good God and suffering coexist. Um, so maybe check that out. Or um, I'm sure these guys, Joel and Dee, or any of the leaders in the church or the welcome team with their beautiful lanyards today would love to speak to you about that if that's something that you're seriously uh, thinking about. But part of the reason I think that I, part of the reason I'm confident to say that God is unchangingly good is because of what he says to Moses um, at the burning bush. In verse 13, he reveals something quite remarkable. For the first time in scripture, he reveals his name. Um, We read it in verse 13. He says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, "What What is his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now we shouldn't underestimate the importance of this moment. God has given his name for the first time and his name tells us something about him. Now on first reading, it it might appear that God hasn't really said that much. I am who I am. Surely I could say that. I am Al and Al is who I am. And what have you learned? I am Al. Not a lot. However, this, this strange and somewhat, basically this, this strange phrase, actually, which, for which, by the way, there is no perfect English translation, it, it, it kind of can be encapsulated, or what it's trying to convey is something like this. I am self-existent. I do not need anyone else or anything else to exist. I am self-sustaining. I do not need anyone else or anything else for me to continue to exist. And I am unchanging. I do not need anything else or anyone else to continue existing as I always have done. That is something about what God is saying. Peter Lewis, uh, who wrote a book called The Glory of Christ, says it much more eloquently. He says, in telling them uh, that God is telling them something about himself which is momentous for them. Notice that he does not say, I am this or I am that, but simply, I am who I am. That is, he is conditioned and defined by nothing outside himself. He is the unconditioned God eternal in his being and unbounded in his freedom and resources. He is the self-existent deity who can be to his people all that he chooses and all that they need. God is the supreme being and we are human beings and everything about our life is, is changing and evolving. One generation passes away for another generation. Atoms are constantly evolving and doing whatever atoms do, but God is constant. David, King David, wrote in the Psalms, All people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God alone exists by his own power. No one caused him. No one made him. He exists in and of himself, and no one else or nothing else in all of creation can can say that. And did you know also that Jesus, when he walked the earth, claimed the name I am for himself? In other words, he said, I am, I am. One of the... um, there are many, many times in the Gospels where he uses this name, but perhaps the most striking one for me is in John chapter 8, where he's having a discussion with the religious leaders, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that doesn't even make grammatical sense. It should be before Abraham was, I was. But God is making a point, and he's saying that the holy, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, eternal God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush, well, I am he. So, at the burning bush, we see the majesty, the holiness, and the glory of God. But we also see, or God also reveals that he cares, he's loving, and he's patient. 
We read in verse 7 of the passage today from Exodus 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. So God sees, he hears, and he knows, which means he isn't blind, he isn't deaf, and he isn't ignorant. Now, he may not have responded as quickly as the Israelites wanted him to, but he saw their suffering and he did not turn a blind eye. Instead, what he does is orchestrates the most audacious deliverance in the history of mankind to that point. And by the way, doesn't that remind you a little bit of Jesus? Jesus didn't just observe our sufferings from afar, but came as a man, died on the cross, and as Isaiah said, was pierced for our transgressions. God cared enough about the plight of his people to personally intervene, but it's interesting to notice how he does it. He doesn't just send lightning from heaven or kind of airstrikes on Egypt, which he could have done. Instead, he chooses, as he always does and still does to this day, to work with or work through and partner with broken people. When God appears to Moses, he is 80 years old. He's an old man. And he has, it's been 40 years since he fled Egypt, 40 years since he tried to deliver the Israelite people in his own strength. And so he spent the past four decades in obscurity, something which has left him lacking in self-confidence to the point where one commentator says he was chronically unsure of himself. Still, God had not given up on Moses. God had chosen to use him as his spokesman. And, you know, whole sermons could be written and, and probably have, and probably much better ones than this, on how God does not give up on his people and how he excels in using the weak and foolish things of this world to shame the wise and to bring about his purposes. But I guess all I want to say on this topic is that if you're... If you today are thinking that your shortcomings, your sin, your failure is so, is so great that God could never use you, I hope that Moses' example here shows you otherwise. Now, when God comes to Moses, Moses reels off a whole list of excuses as to why he's got the wrong guy and why this is a foolish mission. And I'm going to just look at one of those and look at God's amazing answer to, to Moses' question, and then we'll be done. Um, so as soon as Moses hears what God wants him to say, and he knows, and as soon as God has said who he is, he says this in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now God doesn't really answer the question. He could have said, Moses, you spent your youth or your first 40 years of your life in the Egyptian court, and you speak Arabic, so you've got the Egyptian thing down. You're perfect on that front. And you're a Hebrew, and you've witnessed the suffering of the Israelites, and therefore you're perfect on that front too. And not only that, Moses, you spend the past 40 years in the desert caring for sheep. Therefore, you'd be great at caring for my people. Moses, you the man, you're ideal, you're the perfect candidate, you go. But he doesn't say that. In fact, he doesn't really even answer the question. He says, so Moses says, who am I? And God says, but I will be with you. Who am I? Moses, you are the one I will be with. Moses, God is trying to make a point here that the most important thing for Moses to know is not does he have what it takes, is he up to the task, but that God is the one who makes the difference. Moses does not need to have all the answers. He does not need to even be confident. All he needs is for God to be with him. And when he looks at the challenges ahead of him, he needs to take into account that this great God, the great I am, the self-existent God is going to be with him. Now, I think that knowing that God is with us today also makes all the difference. Uh, a friend of Tanya and ours from Christchurch about five years ago um, gave birth to a son. 
And as can sometimes be the case uh, in, when you give birth, it can be, not speaking from personal experience, but so I've heard, um, it, can be, it can be complicated. And actually it turned out that the labor was quite complicated, didn't go to plan, and after the labor, she, the mother had to go into theater. Now, praise God, both mother and son are fine. This is like five years ago, and everything's okay. But in that moment, after having gone through the physical and emotional exhaustion of giving birth and being totally drained, she then faced going into theater. And at that moment, she, she prayed and said, God, I really need to know that you are with me. And as she was wheeled into the theater, um, Another friend from Christchurch just so happened to be the doctor on call that night. And our friend knew in that moment that, wow, God heard my prayer, he knows my life, and he is with me. And then two years later, Tanya was pregnant with our son, Rupert. And our friend told her, told us that story, and I'm very pleased that she did, because it so turned out that Rupert's uh, birth was much more complicated and much more dangerous than we had imagined. Um, Rupert got the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck and wrapped around his body, which meant that for periods of time during labor, his heartbeat was slowing. They monitor mum's heartbeat and baby's heartbeat, and his heartbeat was dropping. And um, to cut a long story short, basically the midwife hit the emergency button, like 10, what felt like 10 people in blue suits ran in, and th pr praise God, um, Tanya and Rupert lived to tell the tale. Praise God indeed. But it so transpired that because of that, Tanya needed to go to theater as well, just like our friend. And as she was going there, feeling afraid, exhausted, and alone, uh, Rupert and I had been left in the delivery room, um, she remembered her friend, or our friend, and her friend's prayer. God, I need to know you with me. And Tanya's full name, I don't know if you know this, is Tatiana. And Tatiana is a Russian name. And just so you know, um, don't believe everything you read on the BBC. There are many good Russians in the world. <laughs> and she's the best one, um, just so you know. Anyway, I tell you that because Tatiana, the name Tatiana, it, well, all Russian names can be shortened, but then they can also be kind of softened into like pet names. So Tatiana becomes Tanya, but then for her, those who know her best, her, her close friends and family would call her Tanyusha or Tanjka. And this can happen for all Russian names. Um, and I give you that context because as Tanya was wheeled into the theater, it just so happened that the doctor on char in, in charge that night was a woman from Ukraine who spoke Russian. And so she saw, she, she saw the name Tatiana on the clipboard, and instead of just calling her Tatiana, knew that you could shorten that name to Tanyusha or Tanishka, and was referring to her in that way. Now, it was just a simple thing, but that made a big difference because it was, she knew that God knew her, God had heard her prayer, and God was with her. Um, can I ask the fabulous band to return, please? Knowing God is with you will make all the difference when you're in the hospital, but not just there. It makes all the difference in the office. It makes all the difference in the home. It makes all the difference with your family. To know that the holy God, the eternal holy God is with you is an awesome thing. So whether this week you will give birth, or, which may happen, um, or whether you face a hectic week in the office, um, whether you're facing difficult conversations with housemates or friends or family members, or if you've got exams or dissertations, which I think might be for some people here, we can know that God is with us. God said to Moses, I will be with you. And he actually he kept his word. If you read the account through, through to the end of Exodus, you'll see that God kept his word. 
we can also have confidence that what's most important in our life is not what we can do, not are we up to the task, but that God is with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Let me just end by reading what Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 8. He says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.